Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 105, week 105, volume 105, number fucking 105. Hey going guys, how's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Danny from Between the Buried and Me, and that will be coming up later in the show. Let's kick off things with the single of the week. And it has to be the new single from Hatebreed. Track is called When the Blade Drops. It's out now on Nuclear Blast Records. First thing to know about this, this is a standalone single. But we do know there should be an album announced very, very soon. This track is exactly what you know Hatebreed do. It's pit ready, hardcore. Hatebreed never miss a beat. Outstanding track. Anyone that loves Hatebreed will not be disappointed. Make sure you check it out. The track is called When the Blade Drops, and it's by Hatebreed. Let's get into Album of the Week, and it comes from Great American Ghost, and it's titled Power Through Terror. This is the third album from the guys, and first thing you got to know, this is an Album of the Year contender, hands down. These guys are setting a new standard for the year in hardcore, and... Everyone's going to have to step up their game after hearing this album. It's white knuckle, pure hardcore at its most satisfying best. It's aggressive. It's impactful. And those breakdowns, let me tell you about those breakdowns. Sexy as fuck. If you're going to listen to one album this week or this month, make sure you give this one a go. Everyone must hear this album if you like your metallic hardcore, your hardcore Give it a go, you will not be disappointed. The band's Great American Ghost. The album's called Power Through Terror, and it's out now. Also this week, if you haven't yet heard our chat with Ethan, the vocalist of the band, make sure you go back. He's one of our OG guests. He was on episode 18. Not a lot of feedback or questions this week, but there is the usual Help us out with a rating and review on iTunes podcasts or on our Facebook page. The other thing we ask is, if you've got time this week, share the podcast on your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, wherever it is. Because when you do it, we notice it, we love it, and we heavily fucking appreciate it. Let's get into the main part of the show. This week, I got to sit down with Danny from Between the Buried and Me. First thing I want to say, thank you very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. The band formed in the year 2000, and Danny joined around 2004, 2005-ish. The band have done seven albums, and they've got one EP. They're a boundary-pushing, progressive metal band, and they're a trailblazer for a lot of the bands everyone froths over nowadays, bands like Periphery. So to say this man and this band are iconic is an understatement, so to get him on the show was amazing and meant a lot to me. Really fun chat, in-depth, all about him, the band, and everything else in between. That chat with Danny is coming up now. So I start off with usually the same question for everyone, and that's kind of, do you remember being young and a certain artist that you became fascinated with or an artist that helped music become a thing for you? It doesn't have to be a heavy band, but just a band in general. 
Yeah, no, my uh, music was kind of all around me since, you know, the, yeah, as early as I can remember. I mean, my mom, my mom was a, a music teacher, and uh, my dad just a huge fan of music. So, um, you know, some of my earliest memories are, are stuff like like musicals. My mom was playing like Phantom of the Opera and uh, Tears for Fears. Um, and stuff like that. And, you know, probably the first artist that I got into, you know, was pop stuff from the very early 90s, like, I mean, Ace of Base or Michael Jackson, of course. Um, but then, you know, like the first record that I got was Green Day's Dookie. And, uh, you know, I was wanting to play basically from then, basically from the time I was about 10, I started playing guitar. So music is was part of your household growing up. So when you decided you yeah. wanted to play an instrument, uh, was it something that your parents heavily backed and supported? Yeah, my mom uh, started me on guitar. She started me on saxophone before that. Um, so I could be in, you know, the, the, the band at school when I was in fourth and fifth grade. But uh, she pretty much coincided uh, that with guitar. And then um, when I was starting sixth, grade you know when I was 12 or whatever um I started playing bass in uh in the band in the jazz band and uh, also started my first band that year so um yeah it's really almost as long as I can remember you know so I mean you, you mentioned in there a couple of instruments um including guitar saxophone and bass so what was your progression like with learning instruments was were you very much just open to playing any instrument or was it literally like you went to guitar and thought, okay, not really feeling this and then transitioned? Like what was your development like with instruments? Uh, well, you know, saxophone, I started playing literally just, I only played it for two years when I was like nine and 10, but it, it was just, just cause just, you know, it seemed like the coolest instrument. Bill Clinton played the saxophone. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't know anything at that time, but I wanted to be in the band in school, and uh, so I played that, and then um, I started playing guitar just real soonly after, man, and, and was just head over heels, Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden. I mean, that was that was my world. It was, it was just done, and uh, my mom started me, and then she quickly got me in um, with someone else, I think, when she saw that you know, I've kind of theorized about this. I haven't talked to her about it, but, you know, either, you know, she recognized like, oh man, he's kind of moving quickly in a direction that I don't know much about. My mom was a classical guitarist, um, or she realized that I was really passionate about it. And maybe that there would be, you know, this line that would disinterest me if my mom was also my teacher up to a certain point. Um, and so she got me in with someone else and, uh, and I was just, I was just in total sponge mode, just soaking everything up. And, um, you know, as a, a, I was pretty much always playing guitar in band and, uh, and then playing bass, uh, at school. You know, I, I could read bass charts, um, sight read stuff. And, uh, I started playing upright bass when I was in high school. I studied that for a year and a half in college before I joined the band when I was 20. Um, but they've all kind of coincided. I mean, I stopped playing the upright bass really when I when I left 
school when I was 20. Um, but I've picked it up in the last couple of years and I've used it on, um, I used it on my, uh, record, my EP that I did, um, over the summer or spring, whenever that came out. And, um, I've just kind of been getting back into getting comfortable with that again. And, um, yeah, all these instruments have kind of coincided at the same time. I started playing piano in college. It was, it was a required course. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that became a huge compositional tool for me. Probably, uh, you know, about 10 years or so ago, probably when we were getting ready to do Parallax, Parallax 2. I mean, I remember writing, you know, stuff like the song Bloom, um, primarily on, uh, on keyboard. And yeah, it just kind of took off from there. So yeah, the, the musical world is big and, and, you know, especially when I'm doing my own stuff, I, I'm, you know, I'm reaching for all sorts of stuff in my room upstairs. I, I've got, you know, percussive toys. I've got any number of things. You know, I'm, I'm just always, always searching for new sounds. Well, clearly, you know, not only with instruments, but also with your musical taste, um, there is no limits. There is no restrictions. And that's something that's quite, quite exciting um, and innovative that you don't limit yourself to not only one instrument, but to one sound of music, like one genre. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, when I was younger, when I was listening to all this music and, and taking in uh, new things as well as the stuff that I had already always loved, I, I kind of like never got rid of the other stuff. So like when I started listening to hardcore, I was still mixing it in with, you know, Soundgarden and stuff. And then, you know, when I got into Dream Theater, I was still mixing that in with <laughs> everything else. And then, you know, when, when I went further back and, you know, really got into like the Beatles and then found my way into fusion and then found my way into jazz um, you know, and my classical influences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always growing and, uh, and it's always evolving. And I mean, you see that directly with our catalog. Um, and uh, I feel it just huge, you know, with, with me and the bands that I've done on the side um, of Between the Barrier to Me. I, there's just, there's so much, and there's so much that I want to accomplish, and it just seems like there's so little time. And, uh, you know, some projects now that, you know, where I'm at now, we're celebrating 20 years of Between the Barrier to Me and 15 years that I've been in the band, and uh, me and Blake and Dusty kind of joined around the same time and just all this stuff. And it's fun to look back and reflect. Um, and then to just be like, there's, there's so much to do. And it's great. It's great to know. It's just like, it seems like with every year, there's something else from the year before that I'm like, God, I didn't get to that yet. And it's still hanging out back there. And yeah, there's a lot going on always. Well, I mean, you, you kind of, one thing, you mentioned earlier, and it's one thing that I think a lot of fans of Between the Barrier to Me always tip their hat to is that um, there is always the core sound, but you guys really push the boundaries. Um, you are at the forefront of basically different thinking. You know, there's always expect the unexpected when you're putting on a new EP or a new album by you guys. Um, is that something that you guys are consciously doing? Or is that just how the chips fall? You know, just how it happens. Yeah, it's definitely a natural thing. I, you know, 
insane core sound. Like I can't even think what a core sound of us is, except that it's the same five musicians playing music. You know, I think when anything goes through the filter of the five of us, you know, it, I guess it becomes uh, between the buried and me. But um, I think it's just, the, you know, an inherent thing like, I, I I wonder, I feel like, I, you know, I feel like Paul could send me the same, theoretically, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, over the course of the 15 years I've been writing music with him, if, if Paul had sent me the same part in, you know, 2005 and then in 2020, you know, how my brain would take to it, um, how I would see it, how I'd perceive it, what I would think to do off of it. Um, it's really interesting to think about, you know, uh, because changed as players, um, you know, anytime we look back at one of these records, like we're getting ready to do uh, the great misdirect in its entirety in America later this year. And, and it's just like listening to that stuff. You're just, you know, like it's, it feels just like such a distant memory. You know, some of the stuff we, a lot of the record we've played, um, you know, throughout our touring cycles over the years, but uh, it's just like, uh, it just operated in a different way you know, thinking compositionally, uh, just the minute stuff, even just, just the riffs, the transitions, you know, uh, the, the, the way everything came together, you know, it's just, it's very different than, uh, how we kind of like put things together now. And it's fun to see because I think, you know, our whole career tells this story and, uh, you know, I'm very glad we're at the place where we are and, uh, and proud of the stuff that we've done in the past. Now I want to just, come back a bit to you know when around the time you joined between the buried and me and what was it like uh for you joining the band was there a sense of pressure and expectation i know the band hadn't quite reached the levels you guys are at now but there were two albums already done self-titled and silent circus so right when you came in was there a sense of nervousness and expectation or was it a very comfortable merge into the band? Well, you know, it was, it was all, it was me and Dusty and Blake all kind of coming on at the same time. Me and Blake for sure. Dusty had done, um, I think two tours with the band kind of as a fill in before we started writing Alaska and, uh, and then, you know, stayed on. Um, and, um, you know, there there were things looking back uh, to that writing session. I mean, of course, we were so young. You know, we were, I mean, Dusty was 19. Me and Blake were 20. Tommy was 24. Paul was 26. Um, that January uh, 2005 that we were writing. And uh, I think that there was it, was, it was a really interesting thing because you had Tommy and Paul, who had been the main composers before that, and then uh, Dusty and Blake, who wrote all the music in their previous band, and then me, who was always the primary composer in the bands that I was in. And then so, you know, with Alaska, not only do you see three-fifths of a new band come in, uh, you start to get introduced to some new sounds and, uh, and, and some different ideas. And, um, you know... I would I would definitely say that I wasn't you know fully comfortable in that environment just yet 
it took like two years of then going out on tour, really gelling with each other, really getting close, going through ups and downs um, to where then we went to write colors. And, you know, with that record, you really saw a gelling of, you know, five dudes who'd lived together um, for most of the couple of years before that. And, um, and just this explosion of ideas, like the, really, it was just like push new, like, and it, there was, I really, you know, it wasn't verbalized, but it definitely was just a feeling all of us of trying uh, to separate and do something totally new, totally different um, for us. And also, I think just like, like for me at the time, you know, one of my favorite bands at the time was uh, was Dream Theater, you know, and, and I was kind of, I was just taken by this idea, like, you know, <laughs> of what it'd be like to hear a band, you know, the music like Dream Theater, but with that even, or, or like Genesis, or Yes, but with that even like further dynamic of it, you know, being so heavy, um, you know, because those those bands, that's that's a tie uh, of all progressive music, are just great dynamics. I feel like, um, but to even to take it just even further, you know, that I think that was the idea at the time, and uh, and that really was just a, a result of us, you know having gone through, you know, doing Alaska with each other, testing out the waters, testing out just, you know, new members and uh, going on tour and then getting back to it. Well, I think Alaska was also, you know, yes, you know, there was a new dynamic going on, some new chemistry going on, but that that album was really well received. Um, and it felt like, you know, before you joined between the buried and me had this kind of underground name and were really bubbling at the surface. And then Alaska came along and it gave it that step. Um, but then the real big step was one of the albums you mentioned colors. Um, Mm -hmm. was Alaska a big push for the band? Like were the tours getting progressively better and better at that period? Yeah, we, um, you know, what's really interesting about the Alaska touring cycle, and uh, I don't think about this a lot, of course, but when um, the first full U.S. tour that that me and Blake had done with the band that was after we'd gotten out of the studio with Alaska, and I think on this tour we actually got, like, the mixes back for Alaska. I remember listening to it on tour. But we did a headlining tour that summer with the Red Chord and some other bands. Um and the album came out that September, and then the whole two-year whatever touring cycle that we did on that album, we didn't actually do a headlining tour again, that whole cycle. So we did just a lot of supporting tours. I mean, so much. And, it, you know, it, it kind of culminated, you know, with the OzFest tour uh, the summer of 2006, um, and we wrapped the touring cycle uh, at the end of that year. And um, so by the time Colors was getting ready to come out, which was that next fall, 2007, um, that was our first headlining tour since before Alaska came out. So Hmm. that was kind of crazy. And what's also crazy about that tour that maybe a lot of people don't know who didn't go to the tour or weren't, you know, paying attention to the band yet at that time was we had written that record 
recorded it, and then when it was coming time to go on tour, I don't think we thought twice about it. We're like, well, yeah, we're going to play the record. I think we were so excited about it we and, and so naive um, that we didn't even think like, oh, well, who knows if people will have heard the record by then. It doesn't matter. I think the tour started the day the album came out, and we were playing it from that day. And um, thankfully it worked, but, you know. <laughs> Well, it, was that, also... it definitely could have could have could have been bad. <laughs> well, I think think something also that I think people might forget about you guys, and you mentioned in there with kind of the bands you played with. You guys have always been, you know, musically people will call you progressive, but you're a band that can fit on a diverse lineup. You guys aren't pigeonholed to just playing with one genre. I mean. You mentioned in there like the Red Chord, bands like this you guys have played with over the years. Um, is right. that something that you guys champion yourselves at, that you can fit on any bill with any style? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's. Um, I think that we can kind of tailor a set, you know, especially now, I mean, this, this long into the band, um, to fit any kind of bill. Um, I will definitely say with the colors album that opened us up to a whole new world, you know, um, on that touring cycle, you know, we, we had toured with dream theater and Opeth, um, you know, maybe the next year with a sugar. And then a couple of years later, like Coheed and Cambria. And, you know, it just really opened and diversified. And obviously the band was bringing in more dynamics and more stuff at that point. And, uh, and just making it, you know, you know, I, I think as the years have gone on, um, for some bands even that we want uh, to bring on tour and support us, um, seem less scary for those bands who maybe are of a different dynamic, you know, maybe more rock bands or, or whatever, um, to be less intimidated because they're like, okay, well, they do have these metal elements, but then, you know, there's clearly a lot more going on with them. And I think we have a very open-minded fan base. I, I think that there's, there's definitely like, I think we have fans that can latch on to different parts of the band, but I think in general that a lot of, a lot of the fans are along for the, the whole ride. And, um, and I, I think that that's a, definitely a good thing for, you know, when we want to take out uh, and, and present more diverse touring packages. Cause that's exciting to us as well. Yeah, I definitely think, as you said, fans uh, welcome whatever you do and there are fans that are going to prefer the heavier and then there's going to be fans that enjoy more of the uh, the funk, fusion stuff. Um, an interesting step you guys took after you joined, I remember it coming out and a lot of people were not surprised by the actual release but they were surprised about the timing of was you guys released the covers album, uh, The Anatomy Of. What was with doing mm -hmm. that? in between Alaska and Colors, was it a case of uh, kind of you just wanted to get some more music out or were you sitting on these covers that you'd been jamming? Like, what was the process? No, yeah, it was a victory. Our our, our label at the time just came to us with the idea. And um, it's crazy because, you know, thinking about it, it wasn't even that long after Alaska came out. It was probably uh, just a couple months later. Mm-hmm. So I remember it was winter time. We went to uh, that winter in 2005, early 2006. We went to um, we went to our engineer's old house, uh, Jamie King, and we just listened to a bunch of songs. 
Um, everyone kind of came in with some. We had some bands um, kind of across the board, like Soundgarden, that we were like, oh, well, we got to do Soundgarden, you know. And um, I could bring in a King Crimson song, and Paul could bring in Blind Melon, and Tommy, you know, Depeche Mode, uh, you know, Dusty Pantera or something, and, uh, you know, um, and kind of go from there. And that, and that was fun. I remember that day. I remember sitting around and listening. Uh, I remember playing the King Crimson song, which uh, maybe no one had heard at that point in the band, uh, Three of a Perfect Pair. And, and I remember Paul being like, I mean, do you know how to play this already? And I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've got the parts. I've got it all figured out. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. Because, you know, I think he was just kind of like, well, that sounds really daunting to sit down and figure it out. And uh, I didn't actually know how to play it at the time. I had to go home and figure <laughs> it out. I was just lying. I wanted to do it so bad. Um, but uh, that was just, it was just an idea that Victory had. Um, there were a lot of rumors at the time that it was an idea that we had to, like, beat up our contract and get out of it. And uh, that, that we just, one, we weren't that smart at the time. And uh, and two, that just wasn't the case. That was literally just like a gift album for Victory. If I remember the first week, it actually sold more than Alaska. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really well received. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it was, really I, I still love putting it on today. You know, you put it on and you just... Yeah, you know, everything, it sounds, I think the reason it was exciting listening to it is that, um, yeah, you knew the songs, but they were a new take from it. You guys didn't just do very much a carbon copy. Um, they The songs sound invigorated. Yeah. Um, now, Colours is an album that I still spin on the regular now, and I remember at the time... Um, just how big it went. It was the the concept when I first got told about it before I listened to it was that how it was all made to feel like one continued continuous song. Um, what was mm. what was the thought behind that? And then the second part is, did it really blow up? Because it it to me it looks like it's become like a cult favorite. Like you did a live album based off it and all of this. So right. Um, yeah. So. The idea behind it was really just um, the love of these concept records. Um, and, you know, I don't remember going into it with that idea. I just remember, because we, we started, the first song we started with was um, Answer the Sky, which is basically like right in the middle of the album. Um, and I just remember getting to that last part and you know that 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 song ends you know with this kind of ambiguous run-on and then a big downbeat and uh and and big open chord and and uh and either paul had that opening of prequel to the sequel already or you know we just kind of got there and we were like oh we could do that and and just kind of keep going you know I really don't remember. I don't remember having a conversation about writing a concept record, but it was just, you know, or, or this thing that just flowed all together, but it was just kind of what we did. I, I, I just feel like it was, it was the first time of a bunch of times that we were just kind of on the same wavelength, um, you know, and, and we work our best throughout our career when 
when that's the case, you know, uh, we're just firing on all cylinders. Um, somehow, like, you know, Paul will play me a part or Dusty will play me a part. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's that sounds like almost exactly like something I was working on. Let's find a way to, like, fit all this together. And, and Blake comes with all these ideas. And it, it just everything works. It, it's crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also been the times over the years where, you know, you, you're in the practice space kind of struggling, you know, uh, to make stuff work. And I can still, you know, put that stuff on. And, and I, well, I don't put it on, but I, I can... I can remember and, and, and feel that, you know, and, uh, it makes you appreciate when, uh, when it's all, when it's all going right, you know? And did it blow up? Like, did, did people just, did you find that you now had a whole new swarm of fans? Cause it, it, if that, you know, if that happened and it, you know, it definitely people, um, that record has lived on for a lot of people, but it, um, it was not an immediate thing. And, uh, you know, honestly, our our shows just felt very, very normal. I mean, you know, um, they were progressively slowly getting bigger. Um, but, uh, you know, really, that was, I think we just felt that was a result of just doing what we were doing, which at that time was still touring seven months or, or so out of the year and um, starting to go overseas. I remember at the very end of the Colors run, um, we might have even already started writing a couple bits of Great Misdirect. I think we might have had a started that fall, but I remember going to Australia for for the first time, mm. basically ending the Colors cycle. That was the very last tour we had done on it, and um, yeah, I think for us, you know, we've always been kind of oblivious because, like, we don't get stuck or or. Uh, too nostalgic for any one period because the, the next thing is is happening you know it's it's, it's always happening mm. um it's exciting to stop and look back you know that's kind of what this 20th anniversary situation is for us right now you know pulling out songs that God, that we just hadn't played in a really 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 long time um and uh it's fun it's fun to piece it together and tell the story you know well, it's also, you know, like we're doing looking back at the albums, it's, you know, I went back and re-looked into everything and it's exciting seeing every step um, that you guys have taken, you know, like the fact that you guys wrote a 17-minute yeah. song, Swim to the Moon, like it's still, <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. What Do you remember writing that song and did it just happen to oh, land yeah. at 17 minutes or were you sitting there and it's like 11 minutes long and you're like, I think we need to add another six minutes to this. So here's what I remember about, I haven't actually reflected on the great Mr. X session, which I probably should since, you know, in another couple months, I'm going to be relearning the whole album. Um, but I remember we got together to start the writing session and I remember that we wrote Mirrors Mirrors and Obfuscation as you know, as kind of one one song. It's split up on the record as an A and B track. But um I remember going through that. I think that might have ended up being like ten minutes or more. And that we uh we very quickly got into 
you know, either disease injury madness or fossil genera. And like really quickly had like the bulk of this album put together. And I think we were kind of like, holy, like this happens like way faster than we thought. And, um, and then we were kind of able to go in and fine tune uh, those, those last couple, especially disease injury, madness and, and, and fossil. Um, and then desert of song, you know, was obviously just a, a real simple idea. Paul had, um, I don't even, I don't know if we even jammed on it too much. I think we, you know, we played it probably a couple times at the practice space and we're like, yeah, yeah. cool. You know, worked out the bridge and, and that was it. And then I think just so much time and ideas just, just were barfed out or exploded, you know, into the practice space that, that became swim to the moon. And, um, you know, I remember on my end, you know, having the intro and then, uh, pre-chorus and chorus and so from what i thought i i remember being like okay well this is a good start and and we'll kind of fill it in and and etc and then uh the ideas just kept coming and then you know we would sit on it a little bit longer and then blake would come in with these ideas you know like in the middle of the, the song there's kind of not even in the middle and i don't know five minutes or so in you know uh i remember blake had the idea to have uh this quasi drum solo in the middle of it. It's not even like a drum solo. It's like a 32 bar thing, but, uh, you know, with these, these fun horn hits, you know, jazz hits and, you know, that was new. And, uh, and I was kind of like, okay, well, we're like, yeah, the part is great. How do we fit it in? And it was a lot of that. And, you know, we, we, we flexed the muscles and then, you know, there, there was definitely, you know, some bits of, of, uh, you know, listening now where you're like, God, I wish we could have, we should have fine-tuned that a little more. And it hasn't been a piece of the set for 10 years. So that's kind of, that's the, that's a big part of the excitement of us doing that album over here is, is kids getting to hear that song live. Finally, we, we've we played chunks of it. We did, we did, we did a version of it where we basically started from the instrumental section and played till the end. And it's still like eight or nine minutes, you know, and we would, <laughs> we played that on a tour or two and that was fun. But, uh, yeah, now we're digging in and playing the whole thing. So that's going to be crazy. crazy. Like you guys are going to do from front to back. Um, Swim to the moon is going to be like that. Just that sounds out of this world. Like a bit of a challenge. Um, I know. You know, I'm a bit of a fan of No Effects, and they very rarely have done the decline live. But oh yeah, um, right, right. Like, are you are you guys at least worried that? At any stage, you'll get to like 12 minutes in and then you'll be like, oh, what part do we do next? And then you're looking across <laughs> at the guys going, which part is it next? No, well, you know, what's, what's hard, um, it's not really in my brain yet because we're playing a whole different set in Australia. <laughs> and then we go from Australia <laughs> straight to like Mexico and South America, Latin America and stuff. Um, so it's like, it's on the in in the peripheral because we announced the tour um and it's just happening around us but not really because it like can't be in my brain yet because i would just get too stressed out and uh <laughs> um that's kind of how that's that's like you know if you want to dig into like the musician's brain i think for me especially when when i'm home like we just got off tour 
a month or so ago. Did the holidays, and then this month, um, I've been working on a lot of new music for myself, for new projects that I'm trying to do, developing a new sound, you know, it's very exciting, very fun. Um, all of a sudden, I look at the calendar, and I'm like, you know, oh shit, it's almost February 1st, you know, I know that's looming, I had to write our guitar tech, how's my bass doing, uh, I'm going to come pick it up next week, and I know, like for me, February 1st, then I got to, I got to kind of change modes, I got to start learning uh, and practicing the set that we're doing over in Australia, um, and probably, you know, what that routine looks like is that's like a two-hour set as well. I'll spend the early part of my day doing that and then kind of decompressing and going back into this new music world that I'm working on. And uh, and every day just kind of going through the set, going through the set, going through the set. And then you just have to live in that, you know, so that by the time we're in Australia, the only music that I know, the only music that's in my brain is this two hours of music that we're playing every night, which... <laughs> Some would say is a lot of music. Um, yeah. And then, <laughs> right, and then we get home, and then you just got to do an immediate dump of that, and and then it's a whole whole new two hours that's going in, in a pretty quick time. It's like, I think we get home from Latin America, um, South America, in like late, mid to late March, and then... Our U.S. tour starts in early May, so that mm. means that means my practice, like, you know, I'll probably start in mid-April, so that's really only a couple weeks. Um, that's pretty quick. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot, and I'm not there yet, but it is, it is, it's, it's, it's like, it's out there. <laughs> yeah. It'll happen. Never boring for, for Danny, clearly. Never not a challenge. Um... The switch up uh, of labels happened, or one of the switch ups of labels happened for you guys after the yeah. great misdirect. Um, you stepped into the world of Metal right. Blade, um, and I think a lot of listeners know Metal Blade is very well known for being a very big name in the metal game. Um, why the switch yeah. up for you guys, um, and how did it come about? Did you look for a label and they were the best ones <laughs> on the plate, or did they come to you and say, "Oi, we want between the buried on us"? Well, I remember, I remember being. We were as a band very mum on the topic, obviously at the time, um, because uh, you didn't want to talk bad about the former label. Also, there was like a lawsuit going on and uh, whatever. Now the label's not even owned by Tony Brummel anymore. Uh, he sold it off for many millions of dollars this year. You know, in the end he won, of course, mm. but um, you know, uh, for us, our contract was up. Tommy and Paul, um, after the first album, the self-titled record, which came out on a German label, Life Force, um, was how a German label found this North Carolina band. I, I have no idea. I've never talked to them about that, really. But um, so they signed this contract with Victory that was something like five albums. I, I, I can't quite, five or six. Um, and, and basically zero publishing. They, they uh, you know, were young, were excited to be on a label that had so many records that we grew up with. I mean, Earth Crisis, Snapcase, you know, all this stuff. 
um, you know, so then fast forward a couple of years when three new members join up and a couple of years later after, you know, hundreds of thousands of records are sold and this and that, you know, and obviously we, we, uh, we were ready for something new. And right as we were writing Great Misdirect, we got our first manager um, on board. And Tony at Victory, I think, knew immediately what that spelled, that the end was coming for him because he couldn't pull a quick one on, on a manager. And um, that probably they'd be coming for him. And so he... I mean, the testament that it is to our fans and, and to this album, to the great misdirect that it's lived on all these years, is really to them and I think to us just touring absolutely crazy on that album. We we were gone for one stretch for almost, I mean, for solid three months and then basically almost like nine. It, it was like 2010. We were just gone. We were gone, and um, uh, because he he put nothing into it, he put nothing into the advertising, and uh, you know uh, they did a they did a video for obfuscation before it came out, but that was basically about it. And uh, I think the communication probably stopped soonly after because <laughs> he didn't want to talk to a manager. And uh, yeah, this is a long winded answer, but anyways, it was. Uh, it was over, and I just remember one time we were playing Southern California, and our manager let us know, hey, like, you know, Brian and Mike from Metal Blade are big fans. They've been fans for a long time, and they want to take you guys out to dinner. They just want to talk. Casual dinner, you know. And, uh, you know, we were open. You know, I, I think that, you know, coming from sitting down with, Tony, you know, in Victory Records in the past, you know, was always just sitting down and having all this smoke blown up your ass, you know, oh, you guys are the Pink Floyd of metal, you know, this is this and that. That was a direct quote, you know, and <laughs> it just talk you up, like, just in a way where you're like, dude, come on, man, like, we're just whatever, you know, and it was so refreshing when we went out with, with Brian and Mike, um, because we didn't talk about album sales. We didn't even really talk about the band. I remember talking about Porcupine Tree and talking about Rush. Uh, just music. Just other music. And I think what we went away with that night was like, these guys are fans of music. And basically everyone that worked at that label, it was a nice small operation. Um, they were just insanely music lovers. You know, they they we're so excited about us. We stood out on the label, definitely. Um, but they also worked with like progressive rock bands. I mean, they worked with Spock's Beard, um, used to be Neil Morse's band, and they always had interesting, interesting groups that were on the label as well. And that was a result of them just legitimately being huge fans of, of progressive rock. And uh, I think we kind of filled a, you know, checked a lot of boxes for them, and uh, and that was exciting for us for sure. And so we signed a contract that was two records and um, an EP, and we started with the EP. Yeah, and it did look like, you know, the shackles uh, were kind of off in a way, not to say there were shackles before on Victory, but, you know, you were able to release the EP and then the follow-up full length, you know, the the Parallax stuff, and then Coma Ecliptic 
Um, it really, it right. kind of felt like the new label breathed all of this new life that the band's like, we're just going to go for it with everything now. Um, and also being yeah. a metal blade, metal blade naturally, no, no matter the style or the level of the band, they give obviously the right publicity to. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you look at how diverse their label is, I mean, from, you know, legacy bands like Cannibal Corpse and Amana Mars, um, to bands like us. And then, um, you know, some of, some of the even, even weirder, smaller bands now that, you know, I've, I've, I've kept up just from friends bands and bands that I, I enjoy, you know, and they got cool records like, um, uh, the new Intronaut is coming out. They just put out the new Cult of Luna, uh, who's a band I love. Mm. Um, they still got they still got great, you know, great, interesting, and diverse artists that they work with. They they put out a they put out a single from that band, the Goo Goo Dolls. Did they back in like the nineties? Oh, when they were just like a kind of. I've heard the song. It's kind of they were kind of like like alternative punk pop kind of you know it, it was you know his voice is still like very melodic but it was it was definitely like upbeat kind of punky alternative stuff wow yeah, really funny wow goo goo dolls on metal blade jeez i'm gonna have to <laughs> gonna have to do some google research when we when we finish like wow dude go check it out <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> um wow my uh, <laughs> wow that stunted me um an interesting thing was, um, I remember the hashtag you guys dropped out for Coma Ecliptic uh, was the rock opera. Um, around this time, I feel like you guys really brought more of the fusion in, um, a lot more of that. It felt like more Rush um, sensibilities coming mm. in, and I mean that in a compliment, um, and not saying you sound like Rush. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, no, I love Rush. Um, it, I love Rush, yeah. It really felt like that was going on with the band. Um, what's it been like with the fans that have been with you since, you know, the Alaska days? Are they all on board with this new steps that you took over the Parallax and Coma Ecliptic? Well, I think that was, you know, that was the thing at the time I remember talking about was that that record felt so natural to make. And, you know, that was like you know, all influences that we've had forever and ever and, and stuff that's been a part of our music forever um, that just got pushed to the forefront, kind of. And, you know, we couldn't have done that record after Alaska. One, it would have been too big of a jump. And two, like, you know, maturity-wise, we just weren't there to to write that yet. You know, it it, it took writing, you know the 17 minute long swim to the moon and then, you know, refining those ideas and pushing further on parallax too. And then I remember, you know, with parallax too, which again ends with another long song, but in, in a much different, much different song. I mean, silent flight parliament is one of my favorite songs that we've done. And it's, um, I just, I just feel like it's, it's sculpted. We sculpted that so well. And it, it, to me, I remember ending that and being like, whoa, that was an interesting thing because it's it's this really melodic song, um, but it has, you know, the, the, the between the Verity Me dynamics, you know, but it, it it still feels at its core a very melodic song. And um, 
And I just remember taking that idea and then, you know, this, this, just kind of like theatrical idea. You know, I, I had that in the back of my head, just like whatever is written, whatever someone sends me, I want to approach it with this idea of, you know, just theatricality, you know, I, and whatever that meant at the time, you know, if, if that was um, making it moodier or uh, just dynamically a little different um, or writing just like themes that felt like um, it just felt really powerful, you know, and, and the coma machine is, is a great example of that. Um, there's a lot of that in that song. And that was a song again, talking like compositionally that was a lot written on, on the piano and it was just kind of, um, it was just a new way of, of 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 just just seeing the musical landscape and 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 kind of going from there. And then and then again, when you put that through, like we were talking about earlier, through the five of us, you know, any of these ideas that that any member was coming in with, it became between the bear to me, you know. And at that time, whatever year that was, 2014 or 15, you know, that was a stamp of between the bear to me in that year, you know. And then, um, and then what was really fun was then like how that record, you know, we were jumping off the energy of, you know, say like Silent Flight Parliament or something. Um, then jumping off that into the Automata series, you know, which I think of as one record. And you, you mentioned that series or that album, as you said, um, and I thought I was really excited at the time that you guys were taking an album and splitting it into two. Um, for me, it felt like you were doing mm. it uh, in a way to adjust and to accept the way the current climate of music is absorbed. Uh, was that why you did it, or was it just for a different reason that you took an album and then split it into two EPs? That was that was the label's idea. And um, at this point, I don't really remember... Um, I, uh, you know, speaking frankly, I, I wasn't really into it. Um, I mm. thought it kind of, I think I thought each side kind of just felt, um, a little incomplete, you know? Um, and I think the reviews kind of showed that when, um, you know, when, when it came out and, uh, and really when the second part came out, cause I remember the, the, the first side got good reviews. Uh, but then the second part came out, and I think people were kind of like, "Oh, like yeah, the 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 quirky side of BT Bam, the you know, the big theatrical melodic side." Like, oh, I, yeah, now now it makes sense. And I think I think the back side is really heavy on that, um, which I love, and but I love the first part. I think it was just it was just written to be you know this 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 one kind of like conceptual story, you know, but. You know, uh, it, it was it was fine splitting it up, and they came out just like six months and uh, six months or so mm. um, apart from each other, maybe maybe a little less. Um, but yeah, like Nine Inch Nails had been doing that at the time. They did that series of like three or four, and uh, I think you know either that year or the year after, uh, Failure did that. One of my favorite bands. They 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 split up their album over shit, maybe like four parts before they actually released a physical thing. Um, Everyone's trying to do something different. Um, I back it. I don't really care at the end of the day as long as I get new music to listen to. Um, but I am such a album, tangible, physical kind of guy. Um, I love 
I love digesting the thing in whole, taking the time, especially for an album that I'm so excited about. Um, just like with the movie, you know, to, you know, I remember like the new Martin Scorsese movie, you know, I had it all planned out in my head, you know, it came out when we were on tour and people were like, Oh, I started watching it on my phone and whatever. I'm like, no, I'm going to like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to make a nice Italian meal. I'm going to sit down, take in this three hour long movie, you know, like that's what I want to do. And I, I'm still, I'm that way with records, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great because I, it's, I, I think it's it's important to still, you know, love so much the things that, that got me excited about music initially, you know, like I talked about Green Day's Dookie being the first like CD that I got. And I remember just pouring over that album layout like there was it was like a Where's Waldo, you know, which for a kid was like phenomenal, you know, because it was just all perverse, weird stuff. But every album that I got was like that. And I learned so much about you know, the, the other players, you know, and the names, you know, Steve Albini and Butch Vig and uh, uh, Brendan O'Brien, you know, it's a big one back then. It was doing all these records and it's just all these names and learning all these different roles, engineer, producer, mix, you know, art direction, manager. Um, and then, you know, that really becoming uh, important later in life you know and for me you know where i'm at like musically now is discovering all these like different like modern jazz artists you know and you can see guys um and you'll recognize one name and be like oh i i trust that sax player i'm going to check it out you know and then learning a whole like three or four other musicians and then diving into their catalogs and oh my god there's so much and uh, i'm just yeah the excitement in the journey is still there so i i I love definitely taking in a record whole, you know, I know not everyone's like that, but that's, that's what I love. Well, you're, you're exactly the same as me when it comes to uh, digesting new music, but also just music in general. And I'm also, we're the same age. So I remember, you know, the excitement of getting a CD and all I wanted to do was sit down, listen to it, whether it was on the stereo with my headphones and look through the inlay. Um, with right with the way the climate of music is now digested do you think um we're kind of getting ourselves too far away from the art of not just creating the music but the art of putting the whole package together possibly but i i think that there's enough artists on each level whether it's you know, me doing like my, my own stuff at home and like screen printing CD covers with a friend or, you know, like, like a huge band, you know, who's, who's still, you know, like, like Radiohead, who still puts such an importance on the physical thing on all these great new, you know, they just released that like public library online of, of Radiohead content, which is like old videos. It's just like any way to be like, here's the stuff, but like presents it in an artful way because it still goes hand in hand. It's still so important. And, um, you know, whether people are buying actual CDs, like I can't speak to that because, you know, there, there's some genres like, like modern jazz stuff or whatever, that it just comes out in that format. And for me, I like to have that, you know, I like doing the digital thing as well, but I like to have for the records that I love, I want to have the physical thing. Um, but like, I mean, the vinyl resurgence is, 
I think is such a has been such a surprise over the you know looking back at like you know records like Colors, which you know, or like Alaska, it didn't come out on on vinyl you know at the time, and so when the anniversaries happen for those records or whatever you know, it's fun to be able to present them, um, you know, in in that format. I mean, it's 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 really cool kind of how it's changed and i mean i love that format because the artwork is bigger you know to think that in the 80s or whenever that the artwork went from 12 inches down to four inches for (laughs) the cassette you know is that must have been so sad for graphic designers and then find a place in the middle for the cd but uh you know i i i just i just think you know with 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 all the changes i i think really it's just Everyone has a different way of of taking it in, but it's like you know we're still selling records in both formats, the merch table every night, and uh, you know if it's a if it's just a smaller number than people who in 2005 were going to buy Alaska on CD at your local store, you know it's just I think it's just evolved and changed, and it all comes back to going to see the band live, so. However, people are getting their music in Australia. Like, hopefully, they uh, they're excited enough. However, they're hearing us, you know, the music we've done over the years. That uh, they'll come out and and check out these gigs because, especially for you know, American band coming to Australia, like we just we don't get there that often anymore. You know, and it's pretty much once a cycle, and um, and and we love coming over. So yeah, I think I think you know. It's- because bands like yourselves don't get out of here so often, I think Australia is the kind of country where when people see a band they love or a band that they maybe know the name of have never seen, they will turn out because they know that if they don't see them now, it's going to be maybe a year and a half, maybe two years, sometimes even longer. We're going from there, you know, which, which you know, we, thankfully we've been able to go to Australia a handful of times to... um to a, a territory that we've just never been to before. We've never been to South America um, outside of outside of Mexico and Puerto Rico. I mean, we've never been to any of the Central Latin American countries. So um, it's 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 going to be it's going to be a fun you know. And it's fun that twenty years into this band that there's still territories we can go to in places that uh, that is like you know a whole new thing for us and for the people that, you know, it's it kills us that there's people in any territory that have been waiting twenty years or however long to see uh to see the band and you know, we've had people travel from Brazil to America and all over and it just it always it's always so nice and flattering, but then it just makes you feel horrible, like, uh, I mean we wanna come, I'm sorry. I don't know why it hasn't happened. I, I wish it happened, you know, and you know. And with Australia now, you know, it's only three gigs. So I, I, I hope people can, uh, you know, make the trips if they have to. Uh, I wish we were getting to more places there. I think it's just budget-wise, it's just kind of, uh, you know, the tour's gotten a little smaller. So, Well, all Aussies listening, you know, we will be championing, um, and we have been championing this tour, so um, won't. Good. Um, Going to just ask you one or two other things I wanted to make sure I touched on. Um, and yeah. one was, you know, you're, you're a straight edge or you are straight edge. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, when, when you're 35 years old, it's like you, 
it, it's not in the front of your brain like it was when you were 15 mm-hmm. years old, mm-hmm. you know, but you're just, you know, for you to say that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> I don't drink, I don't, I've never smoked, I've never drank, I've never, you know, but yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, someone like myself who's only been straight edge for a couple of years, I mean, I don't tag myself that, but um, that is the life I lead. Right. Um, why did you come into that and how and, you know, how many years has it been now? Did, has it been since you were 15? Uh, I've, I've never drank or smoked or, or done drugs, but I, I, you know, it was getting hip to the term probably when I was about 13 or so, um, and started going to hardcore shows, you know, local hardcore scene, getting into bands like, um, like Earth Crisis, um, at that time. And, and, you know, that was also, you know, I went vegan when I was, when I was 14 or 15, um as well so it was just it was just being introduced to those ideas at that time and you know for me with with straight edge it was just kind of like it was like well yeah that's that's already what i'm doing you know that's great but i think it just like it gave you a sense of camaraderie and community um and you know where you know you could feel like an outcast for you know, being someone, the only, the only person in the cafeteria at school during lunch. I went to school, my class was six or 700 people, you know, times that by four grades. Uh, the only person I knew in school who, who was vegan, you know, at, at lunch and, and just, I swear to God, it, there would be someone every day that would just ask like, I mean, and not in a mean way, but they'd just be like, oh, so can you you can't have this. And I'm like, well, no, I guess not. And like, oh man, that sucks. You know, it's like, well, yeah, I love Boston cream donuts. They were my favorite thing on earth. I would love to eat that. I just happened to like care about animals more, you know, now, and you know, at that time, you know, I was, you know, doing all the protests and everything. I mean, the, the, the fire burned, burned hot, but, uh, yeah, as, as 20 some years or whatever have gone on, it's just, it's just life. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, yeah. some people like, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. So some people just have certain, you know, foods, you know, like onions or, or something they don't eat. And, uh, it's for, for me, it's just a whole other sex that I just don't eat, you know, or, or drink or smoke or I don't know. I love it. But of course you get to like our age, right? You, yeah, you get to like your mid thirties and like, I have so many friends I know who've been through recovery in in one way or another um and are uh you know sober i mean sober i feel like is is the word that that you use more like when mm. when when you're you're older or whatever is uh you know and and so it's i think that the, it's so much more accepted when you get older rather than when i was in college and I'd be the only person at a party that didn't drink i mean that was a nightmare scenario i never felt comfortable in 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 those situations of going to bars, even still going, you know, even a nice cool bar. I like a barcade, you know, where I can go play a video game, but I, you still feel a little like invasive, like, uh, like, I don't know if I belong here, you know, I don't quite feel super comfortable. And, 
But at least, you know, as, as you get older, it's, you're, le- you're made to feel less like an outcast for it, you know. Yeah, well, I think the older you get, it, um, it also becomes quite frequent to meet people that are sober or vegan or vegetarian. Um, but you're right, when, when you're a bit younger, um, unfortunately, it's another way to stand out more if you're already standing out. And unfortunately, when people are younger, they seem to focus on what makes people different instead of championing what makes people different. Um, but yeah. I mean, for me, since I don't drink, um, oh, I love it. There's more money in my bank. I'm healthier. I'm, you know, sleeping better. Um, I don't, I mean. That's what I hear. Yeah. I mean, all, you know, if you like to drink or whatever, you know, all good to you. But the thing, I don't know if you have it in America, right. but in Australia, we've got these people now that a that are craft beer fashionados. So they're hiding. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're hiding their alcoholism behind saying that they're into craft beers. It's strange. I'm sorry, guys right. listening, but I find it very strange. If you're obsessed with craft beers and drinking <laughs> them all the time, that's a bit weird. Yeah. Um, We're, um, you know, a, a lot of us in the band, I mean, me and Tommy and Paul, the three of us, I mean, have collectively never drank or smoked or, or you know, done anything. And I think that, you know, it's. I, I think for them that that wasn't an important thing in finding new members, but I think in finding people that that weren't, you know, you know, wild party, you know, crazy people. And I think that we have a a, a thing with our band, with the five of us, where um, you know, one 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 of the old nicknames that that got attached to us in the van days, you know, when, when we were traveling around in a van was BT Bale. Cause you know, it's show would end and, and then bands would go out and party and we would be like, we're going to sleep. <laughs> we're going to our hotel. We're going to go, we might go get some snacks and then we're going to go to bed. <laughs> and, uh, that's just kind of our thing. Like if you go onto our bus right after a show now, I mean, it's like, Wearing our jammies, eating cereal, watching sports <laughs> highlights. You know, maybe maybe watching some a comedy or something. But you like it's 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 a real chill situation. It's it's kind of nice, you know. <laughs> um, last thing I had to ask uh, before we wrap things up is, you're a band that people like to put tags on. Um, some people call you progressive metal. Mm-hmm. Um, some people call you gent. Um, there's everything. There's, really? Yeah, I've heard it. it it's confusing, uh, really confusing. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's like a double-sided question. So the first thing is, how would you describe um, the band to a person who's never heard it? And then secondly, what do you think of tags, like the, the genre tags and how people want to label um, the band as a certain thing into a certain box? That's hard because we all kind of use them to some degree, right? Like, mm. for me to like, I mean, with music, with movies, with art, with anything, it's uh, you. You have to if you're telling someone about something new, you you have to compare it, right, to something. Um, I, I think that's just how we 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 feel what we got to do, and um, I don't I don't mind the labels, of course, because we all use them. You know what I mean, and. Um, but it's something where it's like, 
you know, like the bands who were labeled grunge bands, do you think that they remotely refer to themselves as a grunge band or that they talked to, you know, <laughs> they went, you know, <laughs> talked to other contemporaries and, you know, whatever. Um, so for, for me, um, you know, the, those tags get thrown around a lot. Um, I think the early wave, I think there's always bands that are progressive, 100%. And, um, you know, when we were putting out music like Colors, Great Misdirect, whatever, um, you know, there there weren't a lot of bands in our world, you know. Um, yesterday, um, you know, was the passing of, of, of an old musical friend that we had, Sean Reinhardt, from um, the band Cynic. And so for us to be a metal band at that time and be classified progressive, uh, people had to go back, you know, 15 years to when Cynic put out their focus record and, and Cynic was like the progressive metal band, um, you know, cause, cause they had, they had screaming, they had heavier dynamics, you know, Opeth was in that world, you know, kind of bridging, um, to like when we, you know, were, were kind of happening, but the other progressive people that I think that we, we felt like, you know, were mentioned just just even in that world, just just progressive rock, metal, whatever it was like Mars Volta, Mastodon, you know. And I don't think that we felt like we had um you know, direct musical uh things that, that sounded similar to those bands, but I think that you could look at this group of bands and, and get an energy and a sense that uh they were pushing and doing something different. And for me, that's that's what I took away. Like when I got into Dream Theater, that was, you know, it was my education in hearing music with odd time signatures, atypical song structures, um, atypical album structures, um, and taking that in and then working backwards and understanding, you know, what the bands were that they were listening to, you know, um, you mentioned Rush earlier. Why did Rush stand out so much in the in the eighties? In the early eighties, it was because they were writing music that didn't sound at all like anything else that was going on, you know. <laughs> and writing songs that took up the whole side of a record, and um, and all these things, and then you know, and then working backwards to, you know, yes, King Crimson. Like, I mean, when when in the court of the Crimson King came out, like it just like it was like a cannonball, you know, it, it, it just leveled people, you know, all over. I, I, I think, you know, I, I've read so much about that album over the years. Cause it's, it's, it's fun, right? You, you kind of get lost in where you're at now. And, and, and this, these records that you know so much, Sergeant Peppers or whatever, when you go back and you actually read what music journalists were writing about at the time, I mean, it was like, it's so rare now that we get to hear something that we've never heard before. Right. Mm. Like you might hear something where you're like, "Oh shit, I've never heard those things put together before. That's really cool." And at that time, people were legitimately hearing music that sounded like it was from another planet. <laughs> and so, of course, they were going to call it progressive. I think they thought that it was like the new wave of what music could be, of what rock music could be. So, I really don't mind that tag, I, I think the progressive idea of writing forward thinking music, that's, you know, a new statement. I think that's awesome. I'm like, I'm all for that. If people think that that's what we're doing, 
that's phenomenal. That's great. Um, do I think it's a sound? No, I don't think progressive music, progressive rock, progressive metal is a sound at all. Uh, I think it's, I think it's an idea and, um, that's what I'm sticking to. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Um, right. <laughs> Danny, what we do to finish off, uh, I do a quick fire round. Um, basically it, Oh boy. Listeners love this at the end of our chats. Um, it's kind of what makes Danny tick. So you're given two options mm. and you pick your favorite of the two. Okay. okay. Now, I think I can do that. Now, all the food ones, of course, are vegan option ones for you. Okay? Oh, perfect, perfect. So would, would you rather go a pizza or a burger? Pizza. Okay. Would you rather Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway? Chinese food is my favorite food on earth. Ooh. I do love Indian food, but Chinese, Chinese, Chinese is the desert island meal. Uh, soft taco or crunchy hard taco? Soft. Smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Smooth, 100%. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee, coffee. We got a coffee roaster in the band. I mean, the, the coffee thing is big in our band. Uh, do you prefer to cook at home or dine out? Cook. I, I miss cooking so much when we're on tour. You're going to go see a movie. Do you want to watch it at the cinema or at home on the couch? Uh, depends on the movie. Last night I drove over an hour to see uh, uh, Color Out of Space. It's a new Nick Cage film that's uh, mm. you know, a fun sci-fi, weird art movie. It's an H.P. Lovecraft film. Uh, or story adapted for film. So it's like, if I'm going to, and, and it's at, uh, a, I'm sorry, this is a long answer to this. It's, it's a small chain of like indie, like art house film place called uh, Alamo Draft House. And uh, it's so cool. It's a whole great experience. So if the mo- movie warrants it, I'm all about it. You know, if it's generally, if it's like, cause I love watching like older, you know, I've got the criterion channel. I love watching, you know, like, like movies from the seventies and, and, and weird art movies. I want to watch that at home, generally, you know. But uh, every now and then, there, there, there's. I love going to the theater too. Damn, that's hard to say. I think I think you answered it well, though. Like if it's a if it's a unique, okay, uh, quality movie that needs to be seen on the big screen, doesn't mean you can't watch it at home. You take it on the big screen, um, right? Would you rather spend the day at the beach Sorry. or at the snow? Uh. Of those two options, I'd say the beach. Um, I'm definitely, like, I live in the woods. It's very quiet. I, if, if I were given the choice between the beach and mountain getaway, I would go mountains. Okay. Um, but uh, beach or snow, def, definitely beach. I, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, shitty, horrible, what they called lake effect snow. Dude, get this. It's this shit where you'd have these, these cold fronts come through from the lake, but then down from Canada across the lake, uh, you'd get these brutal Arctic winds and it would just dump on us right Mm. where I lived, Erie, Pennsylvania. And you just get these horrible winters. So 20 years up there, I was over it. You know, my mom now lives even further south. She's in Florida, but she lasted like 55 years. I don't know how she did it, but no, no snow. (laughs) Um, Cat. 
Would you rather a cat or a dog? Dog. Nice. Some of my best friends have been dogs. Um, James Bond or Jason Bourne? Bond. Huge Bond fan. I, I got into those movies with my dad when I was a kid. Big time. Star Wars or Star Trek? You know, that feeling, you know, if you'd asked me a few years ago, easy, Star Wars, uh, and I just, I just am so like not into the newer content they've been doing. I know the show is supposed to be great, The Mandalorian. I haven't seen that yet. I'll say Star Wars. I, I, I do love the Trek, and I, I but I, I, I feel like there's just, there's more invested from my childhood in Star Wars. Now, a couple of music ones. Um, Metallica or Megadeth? Oh, Metallica. I never really got into Megadeth. Oh, sorry, Dave Mustaine. We're just not quite feeling it. Yeah. Um, Offspring Offspring or Green Day? Oh, Offspring, big time. I know I said Dookie was, obviously it's got a, a fun place in my heart, but... A few years ago, I think it was they were doing the 20th anniversary of Smash, and we were in Las Vegas, and Offspring were playing the place the day before that we were playing the next day, and uh, we got in to the venue to see the show, and like they played most of that album, and it was fucking awesome, and he sounded great. I was curious about that, because a lot of those melodies, to me, seem like they're like top of his register. And like very like forceful, you know, mm. like he hit hard, and he nailed that stuff. I thought it was fun. Uh, yeah, Offspring. Both bands have written. Both bands have written really great music and really terrible music. <laughs> but I mean, Smash, Xne on the Ombre. Come on, those are fucking those. Oh, great records. Um, Terra or Madball. Um, fuck, I can't even. I never really listened to either of those bands either. I, I will, I will say that I once um, we played a festival with Madball in uh, I want to say Germany, and there was the U.S. Uh, it was World Cup time, uh, however many years ago, and and there was a U.S. game that a bunch of the bands you know got together and were watching, and Madball guys were all wearing U.S. jerseys. I would never forget about this. There was like some play, some foul that happened. And one of the guys in their crew <laughs> jumped up at the TV and was just yelling, you know, great New York accent, like, you scumbag! You know, <laughs> don't tell him like that, scumbag! And I was like, oh my God, yes. Um, so I'll say that ball because we had that shared experience of watching the, of, of watching the, the U.S. soccer game together. That was fun. Um, okay, last music one before we get to the last couple. Uh, Converge or Dillinger Escape Plan? Oh man, not an easy it's one. It's tough. I, I think you know. I think for me, calculating infinity had such an impact on me when I was in um, when I was in high school. It just like that was really like one of the first real like mind bender records. Um, and I did. I really loved Converge, but uh, Dillinger, yeah, that's def- definitely for me. And you know, we got to 
we got to do, we did inadvertently what was Chris Penny, Chris Penny's last tour with the band. I mean, unplanned, but it just kind of was um, back. Um, that was, that was on the Alaska. And then um, we toured with them. Uh, see, that was the machine record for them. We toured with them a couple times over the years. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm still good buds with, with Liam, their bass player. So yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. We'll go Dillinger. Now, if you uh, are playing a show or watching a show, do you like seeing stage dives or mic grabs happen? I know it's probably not something that you guys witness probably happening a lot for you, but which do you prefer to see? I think stage dives are fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you want to watch a show from the middle of the pit or do you want to watch it from the sound desk where the sound is probably exactly as it should be? Uh. Generally, generally, I want to be sitting down somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, I, I fucking can't. I, I went to go see a friend play the other night, just just a small bar in town. And God, what I watched two band sets, both probably played. I mean, they were like you know punk and stoner rock bands. Probably played under a half hour, and I was probably on my feet for maybe an hour and a half, and. uh and my legs were fucking sore walking back to my car. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'm, I'm toast. But generally, though, uh, you know, I want to, I want it to sound the best. Um, I do love that experience of being closer, but I, I don't want to be in any capacity where I'm potentially going to be moshed. And I don't really go to shows where that's, you know, a, a concern really. But um, I, uh, I generally just want it to sound the best. Would you prefer to tour for the rest of your life or record music for the rest of your life? Now, I know they both go hand in hand, but if you could only do one of the two, which would you do? Uh, write. Write and record music, yeah. You know, I, uh, yeah. And last one. There's so much to be done on that front. I, I love playing music, but uh, like live, but there's, you know, the, the, the self-discovery thing, especially the older I get, it, it's just, so it's everything. I I think that's that's what keeps me going. You know, is 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 that. And last one, would you you're getting given your all time favorite album, and do you want it on CD, vinyl, or do you want it on your phone? Oh, there's there's so many actually that I have in in on multiple formats, you know, cause, cause there, there was that thing where you get into like years ago of, of, of owning the record. I, I want it. I want, I want to have the LP. I want to have the vinyl version of it. But you know, my big thing is, is I like to, um, it's a record that's never been released on album before. Like, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the nineties, early two thousands. that's just now kind of getting the vinyl treatment. You know, I'm into that. Um, but if it's like a record from the seventies or eighties, I gotta find a good record, a good version from that time. I don't, I don't want a, a reissue. Uh, you know, I have some, but again, it's stuff that I just feel like. Because for me, it's like it's the hunt. I love fucking rolling up my sleeves and getting into bins and fucking digging. Like that is so fun, and I mean. Right? I mean, the, the world is such now that, like, so, like, one of my favorite bands is this British band from the 80s and 90s called Cardiacs. 
I cannot find, and, and all their albums exist in vinyl format. I can go to their website, and they, they had to, they've had their own label since the 80s. I can buy them all from them, but I don't want to do that. I want to be in England. I've done this every time I go there. I want to just be flipping through a bin and be like, oh, my God, here it is. And uh, because, you know, it's like once you start that, right? Once I start, once I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy a Cardiacs record. Why don't I just buy all of them? Why don't I just buy every record online that pops into my head? I can do that, but it's way more fun because most of my life is traveling. And one of the things I love to do in a new city or in a city I've been to a bunch of times is you wake up, go get good coffee, get some food, and then dig through some record bins. Yeah, fuck yeah. So, uh, that's my story. Beautiful story. It's good to have something that you're always chasing, you know? Yeah, and, and I, you know, I like collecting things, and it sounds like you're the same, so I like collecting CDs and vinyl, personally. My CD collection is far you know, exceeded my vinyl collection, but that's because I've been collecting CDs for longer. But nothing beats um, yeah. going to a record store. Nothing beats holding something in your hands. Um, but uh, that is an amazing, epic chat, Danny. We have um, reached the end. We went over time, <laughs> so I've got to say, first off, thank you for going over time. Um, I really, really appreciate it um, for the show, but also for me as a fan. So I'm sending much love, um, a lot of respect, and really appreciate it. That's great, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take it easy, man. Bye. Uh, bye.
So that was my chat with Danny from Between the Buried and Me. At the end there, you heard the band's track Alaska, which is from the album of the same name. You heard the track Condemned to the Gallows, which is from the release Automata 1. And the last track you heard was Informal Gluttony, which is from the band's album Colors. Now's that bit of the show where I spark that thing inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So this week, if you enjoyed the conversation, if you enjoyed the music, make sure you get online and have a stream, have a listen. If you enjoy physicals, get onto eBay, get onto the band's merch now. Whatever you got to do, buy a CD, buy a vinyl. If you enjoy merch, get yourself a t-shirt, get some moss shorts, get a hoodie, get a hat, whatever you got to do, help this band out and show them some support. The other way you can show support also is if this band is touring somewhere near you, get out and about, get in the pit and show Danny and the boys some love. I've also got to take this moment to thank Danny again. Thank you so very, very, very much, dude. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. You're a legend. Look forward to chatting again soon. And that's it. That's The Mosh Zone, episode 105. Done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget, you can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pit.